Hi, I'm Mickey Lowe. Hi, I'm Bishop Todd. And welcome Welcome to to the C4SO Podcast. Podcast. Hey, Mickey. Hey, Todd. How's it going? Good. We're on a bit of a roll here. This is about our third or fourth episode or something. It's great to be with you. Yes, we're getting in the groove of things. This is really fun. Yeah, so today we launch our Lenten series with uh, Dr. Esau Macaulay, a canon theologian for Churches for the Sake of Others. It was was fun to have him. He's so fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. And honestly, I could have gone on for way longer. (laughs) I really enjoy talking about liturgy and kind of how Lent falls into the church calendar and sort of the practices that we observe during that time. So it it is just a really, really awesome episode. Yeah, I I didn't want to interrupt Esau, but I I kept wanting to say, hey, Esau, you know, you're talking to a worship leader here in Mickey and somebody who planned services. So like (laughs) she's sitting here taking notes. Yes, yes. Well, and I was going to say too, his book in the Fullness of Time series, the one that he wrote on Lent is super helpful, I think, for anyone who's maybe observing Lent for the first time or has been observing Lent for a long time and they're just looking for a renewed sense of refreshment and information about why we have these traditions. But honestly, even as a church planter and someone who leads worship and plans these services, like Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, Easter Vigil, um, it is a resourceful tool. So I'm very grateful for the book. All right, C4SO, here you go. Here's Esau Macaulay. Well, Esau, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. Me too. Yes, it's so great to meet you. It's an honor. So we would love to start off by asking you uh, kind of a fun question. Okay. Bishop Todd actually told me that you grew up an athlete. Okay. So I'm very curious because I'm not an athlete like whatsoever. It's very, very bad. It's bad. But I admire athletes. So what did you grow up playing? And tell us about a favorite athletic memory, kind of where you're the hero and just had a great win. We just want to hear. Um, I grew up playing. I played football from the age of six all the way up through college. Okay. And I I was on the wrestling team for like two years. And I was on in and that was in high school and in college, I did track and field and I threw the shot put. Okay. I would say my favorite sporting moment was my junior year in high school. I tore three ligaments in my knee. Oh and no! The, the the doctor said that I would be hurt for an entire year, and I injured it in November, which meant I would miss my entire senior year. Mm. And I God was Alexis. Sorry, I'll be really brief, but God was really gracious to me because we didn't have insurance and a doctor agreed to give the um, surgery for free. Oh, wow. And then he knew some physical therapist who did the physical therapy for free, or I don't even know how I would have ever had surgery. And then because I got that top-notch surgical therapy, I was able to come back in six months and I played the first started the first game of my senior year. I was back on the on the field and I I I picked up my, my only touchdown that I can remember in high school was the first game back after that. Nice. Where okay. um, they were throwing a toss. I remember it directly. They were throwing I was playing linebacker and they were throwing a toss to the running back and the running back dropped it and I ran and I picked it up and ran it for a touchdown. Nice. Last part of this story because it ends, <laughs> uh, it, it, it ends funny because um, I ran up the sidelines like 30, 40 yards for a touchdown. And then the next day, the coach is showing the film 
And he had the whole team. It was like this emotional moment. Mm-hmm. And he said, I never forget. He said, Esau, we could have timed you on a calendar. <laughs> <laughs> You've gotten so slow since you were. Oh. I'm oh, running man. up the sidelines and he's going Monday, Tuesday. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, man. It was oh, great. great. It was great. So that's my favorite probably athletic moment that, that I can That's remember. cool. So okay. now that you're old, are you a little gimpy in that knee or are you okay? <laughs> Neither one of these. Like, I was watching, I was watching the Super Bowl the other day. I don't know when this will come out. But I was like, you know, now that I'm 43, I can't even imagine falling down, much less someone <laughs> no falling kidding. on top of me. That seems like a crazy yeah. oh, thing. Like, no I am never purposely on the ground anymore as an adult. <laughs> yeah. sure. And so I was complaining, like, he should break the tackle. I was like, I'm sure if I fell from an upright position, just on the ground on my own, then it would hurt me. <laughs> yeah. so, yes, nothing, nothing uh. works as it used to. Makes you think you're makes you think you're a little crazy when you're in your late teens, right? Yes, Crashing what, into people. And... What made me think it was a good idea to run into people over and over again? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Which yeah. is kind of what a linebacker does. Yes, what I did. Mm-hmm. It was great. It, it was fun, but well, it seemed like a good. I always think sometimes would I be twenty percent smarter if I didn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah. use my head as a weapon for the better oh, part of my the gosh. Mm. No kidding. All right, Esau, one more fun question. So everybody obviously appreciates your intellectual gifts, your intellectual abilities, but tell your C4SO peeps something you judge yourself to stink at and that you wish you were good at. Yeah, what are you not good at? <laughs> what am I not? I mean, tons of things I'm not good at. But something you oh, wish you were good at. Sure, not, yeah, something you wish I was good at. Yeah. Ah, man, now I'm going to be vulnerable. I wish that I was a better dancer. Oh, me too. Yeah. Um, I share and, that. Oh, and a singer. I, mm. I, I used to, mm. I used to attend a very Anglo Catholic church that chanted the liturgy. Oh yeah. And when, when I lived in Scotland and let's just say that that was not my spiritual gift. <laughs> I did it. I did it. You know, I was a part of the regular clergy rotation for three years and mm. it was a struggle. So if you want, I can give you a, No, I won't give you a taste. I won't, I won't record that for posterity. Hey, maybe someday. Okay. But maybe you can hear me go, the Lord be... See, that, look at that. <laughs> yeah. That was bad. I saw Mickey's face already. No, no. <laughs> yes, I used to do worse. that, and I was not good at it. But I'm actually, and Todd knows this, that I'm, I'm secretly a liturgical traditionalist. Yeah. I actually love doing things like chanting the Great Litany, but I just don't yeah. do that. Yeah, we appreciate your, your vulnerability. Yeah, we'll keep it just between us here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everybody that I can neither sing nor dance. Okay, <laughs> well, it's good to know. Awesome. Well, Esau, thank you so much for being a part of our our Lenten series, and this is actually the first that's going to come out. So yeah. we're really excited to just get into the season and just talk about a lot of things. But we'd like to just start off by mentioning that you are the general editor of the Fullness of Time series, yes. and this is kind of what we're going to be covering today. Is the the one you wrote about Lent. So can you just tell us more about that? Yeah, I think that part of what it means for me to be an adult is to kind of embrace all the different parts of my personality. Mm. And I actually signed the contract for this series around the time Reading While Black was coming out. And so I had a little bit of juice so I could kind of do the Mm. project that I wanted to do. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, you know, something that was really important, like the two parts of my spirituality that are really important is the fact that I was raised in the Black church and the traditions of Black Christianity still stay with me and shape who I am today. But the other thing that happened along my spiritual journey is that I encountered Anglicanism and the great tradition and prayers and the colics and all of these other things, and they made me a better Christian. 
And so I wanted to write a series of books that would introduce that or, or, or oversee a series of books that would introduce that to the wider Christian world. Because in the same way, it's not the exact same thing, but in the same way that I felt like the Black church had something that was relevant to Black Christians in the wider world, I thought that the, the, the liturgical life had things that are also good for Christians who are trying to follow Jesus faithfully. And so part of it was an attempt to do that. And there was like this moment a couple of years ago where I felt like people were kind of going into different ways of like figuring out their spiritual identity. And I said, you know, there's one way of being a Christian that is actually tried and tested. Why don't we we do that? And mm-hmm. so it was it was funny. It all kind of came together really fast. I kind of I tend to be an impulsive person. And so if I get an idea in my head, I just kind of do it. And so I called Tish Harrison Warren, who's a good friend of mine. I said, hey, Tish, on a Saturday. I want to do a book series on the liturgical year where you do it. And she said, yes. So then I like call Wes Hill, who's also a friend of mine. I said, Wes, will you do it? Then I email Fleming because you don't just call Fleming Rutledge. <laughs> right. Fleming, Rutledge. Hey, Fleming, I got this book, the series on liturgical year. Will you do it? Emily McGowan, like is, her office is two doors down from me. And I said, it was during the break. I said, Emily, you're doing this too. Bishop um, Emilio Alvarez, who's doing Pentecost. It was all settled with the names, Mm. probably from, I think of this as an idea to everyone in principle agrees in like 48 hours. And it was kind of funny because I then went to IVP and it's like, I have an idea and here are six amazing people. You have to say yes. Yeah. (laughs) And so I, I tried to make it a no brainer. When they saw that list of people, they would have to agree to it. And they were, they were more than willing to do it. And they said, sure. And so we had a series. That's a great list, man. Well done. Yes. Esau, as someone who became an Anglican in adulthood, and and I resonate with this myself, I became an Anglican a couple of years ago. So I I too have experienced this incredible form of discipleship that we receive when we're a part of, you know, a liturgical tradition. But as someone who became an Anglican in adulthood, what are some of the elements that you found in liturgy that were the most edifying to you? And what were some parts of liturgy that you had the hardest time uh, understanding or adjusting to? So I would say the most edifying part for me, I could talk about this all day, but I'll try to be as brief as I possibly can. One is I knew I was, I felt that I was called to ministry at a relatively young age. And there was one thing that I would say really intimidated me, even as an 18, 19, 20 year old, which was I couldn't imagine being or leading a Christian community for like 20 years or 30 years. I didn't think I had enough good ideas. Mm. I mm. felt like I probably had like 20 ideas. Yeah. <laughs> and so I even something as logistical as what will I preach every Sunday? Because I you know, have some churches where they only preach John. It's like, how would I actually give my people the whole ministry and life of Jesus? And then there is like the idea of like, how actually do you, how do you be a Christian? How do you actually do it? Like, how much do you pray? And where do you pray? And when do you pray? And what do you pray? And I felt kind of inadequate to give someone Christianity. That was probably the best Mm. way of thinking about it Mm. as a deliverable. And I even was afraid of like, what does it mean to be a, a husband or a father? And I knew this was things in my future as a Christian. Like, what does family prayer look like? All of yeah. the like nuts and bolts of how to be a Christian kind of scared me. Mm. And so one of the things that I that, that immediately appealed to me in the liturgy was the structure itself. It's like, how do you how do you organize the church year? Well, you do Advent, Epiphany, like Christmas, like the mm-hmm. the rhythm of life that it wasn't my idea. 
but it was the gift of the church's wisdom, really felt like something that I could get my hands around. So I'm not saying here's how I have figured out how to be a Christian. This is how the church has figured out how to be Christians. Right. And not just that, that it was in like on a Sunday service. That's kind of like too simple. It was a deep tradition that I could explore in adult education and family discipleship. So what do you do as family? You know, you do the Advent wreath during that time and you do Compline. And so mm-hmm. I felt like when I became Anglican, I got like an entire spiritual map that I could do. Mm-hmm. And I knew that it worked because it had worked on me. So as I was going through the liturgy the first time, I, I felt like it was making me a better Christian. And mm-hmm. I said, oh, I can give this to someone else. So that was the first part. The second one, which is kind of weird, and, I, and I've never really, I don't think I've ever talked about this in a podcast. So Mickey, maybe you, 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 you have a secret. So <laughs> I think it's true that Christians or people sometimes recognize when, that they might be reasonably good at stuff. And so when I was younger, I felt like, you know, I might actually be a relatively good communicator. And sometimes communicators like who do this well have big churches. And I was afraid that I would get caught up in build a big church, build a big gym and like make this whole thing. And in the the, the structure of free church Protestantism, like the pastor is the show. Yeah. And I didn't know if being the show would be good for my soul. Mm-hmm. It's weird that my life ended up like, you know, becoming yeah. what it was. But like the, the the plan was to say, you know, the thing that I love about the liturgy is that the pastor isn't the show. Yeah. Right. He or she is a part of a wider scenario. And the sermon doesn't climax with the sermon from mm-hmm. the, the man or woman who's most wise. It climaxes with the Eucharist, the proclamation of Christ is risen. And I thought no matter how bad I preach on Sunday, no matter what, after that, they get the creed yeah. and the Eucharist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like the, the, the beauty of the liturgy is that it actually put clergy, I think, when done well, in their proper place spiritually. Yeah. But we're a part of the worshiping community. This might even seem small, but even clergy spouses and clergy families are different in like liturgical communities. I've just noticed that the vibe around the clergy wife or cl- clergy husband is a little bit different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so because the pastor isn't everything, it even allows for healthier interpersonal dynamics. So yeah. in a lot of ways, this tradition just means a lot to me as a way of being a Christian, as a way of being a husband, as a way of being a father, and as a way of being a clergy person. I love that. The hardest part has been the lack of enculturation. Mm. Yeah. I didn't think it would be this complicated. I, I was interviewed one time. I didn't think it. I didn't think it'd be that complicated to love Kirk Franklin and the Book of Common Prayer. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that Anglicanism at its weakest thinks that the British parts of it are the things that matter. Mm. Mm. And I want to say that the liturgy is the gift of the church Catholic and that the liturgy can be enculturated in different forms. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the struggle to get that idea across has been difficult or get people to see the vision um, for it. And so that's part of the hardest part is getting an enculturated version of Anglican spirituality. Mm -hmm. It both keeps the great tradition, but also thinks about the ways in which the gospel or God has been in work in black and brown Christian communities outside of the Anglican tradition and mm-hmm. finding some way to form some kind of um, biblically and theologically faithful synthesis. Mm-hmm. That's probably been the hardest part. Yeah, totally. 
So you, you mentioned in your book that when you discovered liturgical spirituality, some of your earliest memories were marked by Lent and the season of Lent. Yeah. Why do you think that this was so impactful for you at the time? It was literally the time of year. Like Lent okay. is like late, what, late winter, early spring, as yeah. you begin to think mm-hmm. about it. And it was my senior year in college where I was in this place of getting ready to start seminary. I was looking for something to anchor me. And so part of it was that. But the other one was, and this is what I mean, I had never, I want to be careful because one of the things that you do when you talk about transitions is that you feel like you can disrespect your previous experience. Mm -hmm. I had a great experience like in the Black Baptist Church that I grew up in. So it wasn't that it was inadequate. And the best way that I can talk about it is, I felt like I was outside of the story of Jesus looking at it as a Baptist. Mm. I was taught to like read the Bible and think about Jesus and like kind of, it was like I was a step removed from the story. And there's something about the liturgical sacramental spirituality that immerses me in the story of Jesus. And I felt like I had spiritual experiences through that immersion that I had not had before. And so when you have something like Good Friday and you have the liturgies and the solemn colics, I felt like I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just don't think that, and this is like kind of the best kept secret. I, I, I just stay with Lent and not talk about um, Easter vigil. So I'll stay <laughs> in Lent. I knew I was going to die. I've always known that. But no one ever like told me personally to my face, you were going to die. Right. And so when you walk up, and you on Ash Wednesday, you walk to the front of the congregation and the priest marks ashes on your head and say, remember that you are dust and to dust you're going to return. No one ever said that to me. Mm. Right, right. And live in light of the reality that both like you are destined for death and life. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it like the liturgy brings these things together, right? When you think about like the um, installation of the Last Supper, the stripping of the altars and the, and the disciples fleeing into the night, that's something I read about, but I inhabited it. When you think about Holy Saturday, the one that like nobody does, unless mm-hmm. you, by the way, little known fact, and I don't know if the bishop has told you this, but if you do Holy Saturday, not Easter Vigil, but if you do Holy Saturday, you go straight to heaven. Like it's not no <laughs> perfect. <perk. laughs> That's not a great park. Well, <laughs> like we, we, if you can get 20 people in your congregation to enjoy Holy Saturday, everybody in the congregation goes It's like, I don't think it's rapture, but you just immediately zoom like right Elijah, they just Every, yeah. everybody. You just made everybody happy at Holy Trinity and Costa Mesa, the church I started, because we did Holy Saturday. And you're right. It was tough to get 20, 30, 40 people there, yeah. but they're all in heaven now. Yeah, they're all, they're all gone. They're, they're yeah, gone. They, yeah, it only happens once. Little yeah. known fact. But like, had I ever thought about Jesus taking the Sabbath, like Jesus resting during the Sabbath, and giving me permission to rest. Like these kinds of things are things that I read but didn't inhabit. Mm -hmm. And so when I was looking for a way during that season of life, it was a spiritual pilgrimage. It's like we we are Mm -hmm. blessed as Christians if we have these moments. And I think that sometimes the kind of spiritual flightiness is when you chase these moments over and over again, and you want it every single time. Yeah. Mm. And I don't think life works that way. I think that God, in His graciousness, periodically gives us these moments of clarity. You know, I, I talk to my students here at Wheaton all of the time, and a lot of them will spend most of their adulthood chasing the church that they loved. 
I got this great church that during this one particular point in my life where I really feel like I grew spiritually. And they then want to find that and they can't find it. And what I say to them is, no, you had that church experience so that you would become the kind of Christian who can live in the world. Hmm. Yeah. And so that first lens for me is not something that it has been or can be repeated, but it showed me the vision of what was possible. Mm. And it allows me to follow Jesus better. Mm. So Isa, much of what we're talking about here and all the work that you'll do in your series has to do with some people think of as like a scripted form of Christianity. So I want to get you to comment on this by just telling you a quick story. Uh, Thinking of Holy Trinity in Costa Mesa, when I was planting that church, I I did some moonlighting as a professor at Vanguard University in Costa Mesa. And I was, so I was teaching evangelism and spiritual formation to undergrads. And I would make them come to our Ash Wednesday service and write a paper about it. And I remember debriefing with one of the classes afterwards. And I just never forget this girl, you know, probably 19, 20 years old, very sincere. She was not being snarky or sarcastic. But as they were debriefing the service, she said, but I don't understand, Professor why would I want to pray using someone else's words? And she mm. was like truly wrestling with it. Like, yeah. Yeah. because someone else's words are insincere. It's not my heart. So talk a bit about how people struggle with that, with this liturgical yeah. form of faith. First, I used to be that person. Yeah. So this is not someone who I'm arguing with. And part of the, I think the sympathy that comes across in the book is mm-hmm. that I have those sure, places yeah. where I have that conversation with people who may be in that place. So in other words, I'm not judging this person. But what I realized is that everybody has liturgy. Everybody mm-hmm. has structure. And what I yep. say is the announcements are not in the middle of the sermon, right? The announcements at your church happens at a certain time, you yeah. know? And so every church has an order in which they do things. And so even like in charismatic traditions where you kind of have like the, the kind of opening song that gets people going, mm-hmm. it's like the deeply evocative song. Then you got to get them with the third one in the set. Like you yeah. Oh, yeah. an emotional arc into, so there's a liturgical reality to all churches. No right. church reinvents it. And I think that what people sometimes imagine is by me praying someone else's words, it is less authentic. Yeah. There's a couple of things mm-hmm. that, that I feel like, can I, can I just talk about the Bible for a second? Sure. I, that's your job, I, man. Yeah. It's like every now and then I have to bring out the Bible. <laughs> so I want people to, I think that people don't understand this. We know it, but we don't know it. The Psalms are probably some of the most deeply emotive literature in any tradition, like yeah. any tradition, not yeah. just in Christian. Like the Psalms reflect a deeply tender and emotional relationship with Jesus. The Psalms are the spirituality of a people that were deeply liturgical. Yeah. Hmm. In other words, the people of Israel had a set set of rituals and prayers. They said over and over and over again. And it's actually laid out in extensive detail in the Torah. But then you see, well, what kind of spirituality did that produce in people? And you see that in the Psalter, right? The Psalter Mm -hmm. is the spiritual longings of the people who also have a liturgical spirituality. So it seems like repetition produced a deep spirituality. But the thing that's even more important than that, the things that were produced, those Psalms are themselves fed back into the liturgical life of Israel. So Israel now are repeating these deeply emotional Psalms written by someone else that comes out of their liturgical spirituality. So in other words, it seems to be the case that people who inhabit liturgical spaces are able to have robust, 
profound encounters with God. Mm. And if that's not, so in other words, my rebuttal is Psalm 23. Mm. Like the person who did liturgy did Psalm 23. What people can sometimes imagine is, I can't imagine this kind of spirituality producing a robust relationship with Jesus. And I want to say it actually does. Yeah. And then when you go into the early church, the, the early Christians before the destruction of the temple continued to go to the temple and engage in deeply liturgical spirituality and then do the things that they did. Mm-hmm. And so we simply don't have evidence that the mere fact of repeating words leads to bad Christians. Right. Now, it can happen. You can have bad Christians who are deeply liturgical. Sure. But you can also have da- bad Christians, or not bad Christians, um, poorly formed Christians who are deeply spontaneous. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And right. so what we tend to do is look at the worst forms of the tradition that is different from us. And so are there some Christians who do the liturgy, who do it in ways that are rote and dry and not life-giving? Yes. Sure. But are there also Christians who are in non-denominational churches that sing five songs and have a sermon mm-hmm. in which it is... Still an empty faith. I mean, if... Still an empty faith. So. Yeah. I think that there is no escape from the potential to fool yourself in worship. Yeah. Mm. Um, and we could say more. I talked about, I had like an extensive discussion. Sorry, can I be there? I'll, I'll give you 30 more seconds. Yeah. Yes, so please. This whole thing that um, Jesus Jesus talks about in the, um, in, in the in the Gospels, that beware of practicing your righteousness before men, lest you, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Go in secret. And so people sometimes see things like Ash Wednesday and these public forms of Christianity and say, Jesus explicitly told you not to do that. Yeah. And the point, though, and this is like the amazing point, the point is actually not the external act, but the interior motivation. Because in the same way you see it in Isaiah, like, why do we fast? You do not see. Well, because you fast. To it, but then you oppress your workers. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's because you're doing these works to be seen by other people. Right. right. So Jesus is saying, not don't do the activity, but do the inner spiritual work to make sure you're doing these activities for the right reason. If that's the case, then you can't simply abort the forms because what you could do is say to yourself, "I'm not like those liturgical Christians who do outward forms," and your lack of outward forms can also be a form of spiritual deception. Yeah. Right? Totally. Like you, can, you can celebrate the fact that you, you're you not liturgical mm-hmm. and you're publicly not liturgical. It's almost like the people, and no shade to the, to the people, like, I don't watch the Super Bowl. I don't do any sports because I'm a real serious person. It's like, well, yeah. what do you get from doing that? And so all of the, yeah. all, that, all that to say is there is no way to avoid doing hard spiritual work. Yeah. Mm. Asking myself, am I deceived? So true. Hello, Eric Vincent here. C4SO's Director of Administration, inviting all C4SO clergy, staff, spouses, and children to this year's Clergy Conference at Christ Church Overland Park, May 3rd through 5th. There will be food, fellowship, and fun. What's not to love? In our sessions, we'll be exploring the theme, Confident Ministry, Faithfully Navigating Our Times, targeting three specific areas of our current cultural landscape, marginalization of the church, gender identity and transgender experiences, and political disunity. Our keynote speaker, Bishop Todd Hunter, alongside psychologist Mark Yarhouse, will specifically address pastoral implications and practical takeaways. Register now at c4so.org to take advantage of early bird pricing. 
if you register after February 28th, the price increases to $329 per adult. So don't wait. Register today, and we hope to see you in May. Here's the thing. I could talk about this all day long. I, yes. I love it. You, you, you got me going on the liturgy. Yeah, so. yeah. And and especially as a, as a new church plant where a lot of folks at our church are experiencing Anglicanism for the first time. We just love talking about this sort of stuff and kind of helping people understand why we do things the way that we do. But I think one of the gifts that the church gives us as well in liturgy is the prayers that are written, the things that we recite help us when we are not sure, like the, the creed, when we recite the creed, there are moments in which we're like, yes, I believe this. And then there are moments where we're like, I'm not sure, but this is how God helps me believe by repeating this. There is a certain humility. And so once again, right. this is in its best, best form. Like we don't know everything. And part of receiving the church's prayers is that we don't know everything and understanding that people might be smarter than us or wiser mm -hmm. than us, or the church might be wiser than us. Because we've all seen um, things that were good ideas that kind of burn through the church and then they're gone in 18 months. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to like call out like any other fads because everyone who did those, I'm assuming most people who did them, did them in good faith. But every couple of years, especially in evangelical spaces, it's like a good idea just becomes, we all do this and then we kind of all move on. And I want to say, there are certain people who are just burned out by that, that consistent yeah. search for the new thing. Yeah. And there's something to be said for recognizing what God has already been at work across time and culture without being stuck right. in it. Right. I think about like, you know, and this is not to be mean. I understand the heart behind it. Sometimes churches that have like bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger Easter services. So what are we going to do this year? We need to have lasers. And like, like yeah. it feels like, so you're in a committee and you're in a room figuring out how to make Easter meaningful. And I'm just sitting there with my like Easter vigil, just as happy as I can, as I can be. I'll tell you, I used to be, I used to be the worst Mickey. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to confess. <laughs> I'm no it. longer this kind of Anglican, but I'm going to tell you, I'll never forget when I was first, I was in seminary when I first got in, into this tradition and they, I was taking a class, it was pastoral ministry. And they said, well, what you have to do is do a, a baptismal service, a wedding service, and like something else. And I'm like, done. <laughs> yeah, got out nice. your prayer book. And, yeah, and they no went, big deal. But you can't use the Book of Common Prayer. And I was like, I refuse not to use the Book of Common yeah. Prayer. So I got to see. I got to see because I was in a, I was a cage stage Anglican. I was like, we have this stuff. Mm. Uh, but there is something to be said about I don't have to cobble this and this and this right. and this to make it meaningful. We have what we have. And this this is kind of one of the things that I can say to, to Anglicans in all humility. The best thing that we have is the things that makes us us. Hmm. So we can say we have found a way of being Christian that we found is useful to us. And if we can do it in a non-arrogant way, in a non-presumptuous way, in a way in which we don't look down upon other people, we can say that we are Protestants who have been gifted with the church's memory. And in a context of Protestants, because of our pragmatism in America, are always tossing things aside, we're the people who remember. Yeah. And if we can remember without being trapped in the past, without being arrogant about our memory, I think that what we offer is something that's for the good of the wider body of Christ. So mm. in the book, it's not written for just Anglicans. Yeah. It's saying Protestant who's terrified of all of this stuff. 
this is part of your heritage. Christians were doing really good stuff before Martin Luther showed up. Yeah. And maybe mm-hmm. we should keep some of it. So Esau, as the careful New Testament theologian that you are, in the last chapter of your book, you make an important distinction for readers that these liturgical practices in general or the specific practices of Lent that they don't earn us anything. We're not yes. like doing this to be loved yeah. by God, but they have other benefits in our life that yeah. have nothing to do with earning God's favor. So say a bit about those benefits that come to us in these practices. One of the difficult heritages of Protestantism is the fear of spiritual effort because <laughs> we are afraid the spiritual effort is going to become a part of this merit. So we have to, we're always afraid of doing anything that might kind of approach that kind of spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. But what I want to say is what spiritual practices do is open us up to the presence of God. They don't carry you to God. They're not the means by which God always, um, like God is happy with you because you've done this and then he kind of comes to you. Yeah. But it opens us up to what God might do to us, do yeah. for us and through us. Yeah. And so what I, I like to say, it's a spiritual practices are not the thing itself. They open us up to the reality of God himself. Yeah. And so the church has developed ways of saying, when I did this, God showed up. Why yeah. don't you try it? Yeah. And so what I would what I would say is that these spiritual practices open us up to possible encounters with God. And what it does is it, it gives you as many possible avenues to have this encounter. When I was growing up, the way that I was taught to encounter God was go to church on Sunday, which is a great place to encounter God, and then like read your Bible. Those mm-hmm. are like the two things. Like those are the two ways to encounter God. I'm not saying we didn't fast, but we didn't fast, actually. We didn't. Yeah. Like sure, <laughs> yeah. we didn't fast. We didn't have set prayers. This is a perfect example. I never in my life, other than feeling guilty when the pastor had said something that I had, like he called out a sin that I was doing, he got me that way. Mm. But the examination of conscience. Yeah. Where like there's a list of sins. And this sounds bad, but it's actually good because you can lie to yourself and spend your whole life just like doing things. I didn't even know this. And yeah. if you go through the examination of conscience and you can say, here are ways in which this list has revealed to me places where I can grow in grace. I am a better Christian for it. Yeah. I think you can think about exercise in a way that makes you feel guilty. Like I'm not as buff as I should be. And every time I eat a cheeseburger, I'm a bad person. Every time I skip a meal (laughs) and it becomes like this guilt thing. Right. Or you can say, you know, part of the way that I'm able to, to love my family and do the work God has given me to do is by exercising. And so that even the small things that I do, if I walk a mile, if I run a mile, if I run a couple of miles, each one of those things are helping to form me into the person that God has called me to be. Yeah. And mm. so when I talk yeah. about the spiritual practices, the spiritual fitness, it's not in the guilt form. It's right. in the life-giving form. Yeah. And there's this place where, and this is like, maybe it's endorphins and all of those other things. Because I never understood it um, until I was running. You get to this place where running itself, you get to the other side of that initial feeling of fatigue, and there's the joy. Yeah. Mm. And you can't get to the joy unless you go through that first mile or so of just feeling like my legs are tired and all of mm-hmm. it. Then you get to this place, like, oh, I can do this forever. This is great. And so I feel like spiritual practices are the means by which you get to that place where then God's joy comes to you yeah. in all of his fullness. And it's like running. Sometimes you run and you never get to that place, but sometimes you do. 
And so you keep returning to those practices in the possibility that God might show up. That's so good. You mentioned uh, fasting, and I feel like a lot of folks who are either outside of liturgical tradition or, or within or new kind of have this understanding that Lent equals fasting. There's something that has to do it. So that's kind of one of the biggest, I think, spiritual disciplines that we encounter in Lent. So how do we take these spiritual disciplines that we explore in Lent and how do we, how do we use that as a jumping off point for the rest of the year? Right. Because we don't only want to fast during Lent. We don't only want to, you know, do our Lent devotion. We like, you know, we don't want to limit it just to the season. So how do we. The way that I say is the best way to have a good Lent which I rarely do as I'm supposed to, is to actually plan it. Mm-hmm. What I mean is yeah, going into Lent is like the pre-assessment. And if you say something like, so when we think of the fasting as a part of it, but one of the things that you kind of put things down and you pick things up. And so if you say, you know, over the course of the last year, I have failed in kindness to my neighbor. I've been short with my spouse. And so you say during the season of Lent, I'm going to make it a spiritual discipline to focus on renewing the things that have fallen away. Mm. Even something like charity, you know, like a lot mm. of us right, right. believe that thinking the right things about justice are all that matters instead of actually participating. And so you can then begin to pick up practices that continue after the season. And so what I talk about as it relates to Lent is not just what do I give up for a short period of time, but what is it that I might be able to pick up you know it's become a relatively common thing to do things like social media fasts yeah Mm, and so hopefully though if you do a social media fast you return to that social media with a healthy perspective yeah and so to step back means to reflect on the thing itself and so that's probably what i would encourage people to do is one is not just focusing on what i want to give up but what are the practices that i can that i can add Right, and it's rare, and maybe I'm just like a, a, a really bad sinner, um, Bishop and, and Mickey. I've never come to Lent in 20 years. So you know what? I'm perfectly spiritually healthy in every arena. My kids love me, my wife loves me, my God <laughs> loves me, and I treat everybody perfectly. I yeah, keep this going, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Arrived. I have nothing to give up here. And but there's always something, yeah. and so and this is what I'm talking about, like the grace of Lent. I just thought maybe in my head that I became a Christian. I'm supposed to get holier until I die. Like kind of a steady, basic ascent yeah. to glory. And you get to mm-hmm. the end and you're like, you just float into heaven. And I realized, well, the church kind of goes, no, it's not this steady ascent. It's more kind of like this two steps forward, three steps back. and it, But you're still progressing towards holiness, mm-hmm. but it's a jagged path. Right. And so Lent gives me the real opportunity to say, Free of guilt and judgment, how can I once again pursue my first love? Yeah. And the great thing about it is I've done that in ways in which I failed spectacularly. Like the very thing that I thought I was going to work on, I I made a mess of the entirety of Lent. But that showed me something too, right? And so I think that that's probably what I want to suggest to people. It's like take advantage of this opportunity to renew your spiritual life. They talk about you should do marriage uh, renew your marriage, renew your vows periodically. Yeah. This is kind of a spiritual renewal mm. 
that exists perpetually in the church. All right, Esau, help us uh, land this plane with a a couple of um, practical things here. Yes. So, you know, if you look at a piece of literature like your book on Lent or Reading Wild Black or Josie or whatever, it's one thing to say, uh, what's this text say? It's another thing to ask, what's this text mean? But I always find it's interesting, especially to ask authors like yourself, what were you hoping this book would do? Like we can all read it and know what it says and know what it means, but you had something in your brain, I know you did, that you were hoping this book would do. So what were you hoping? I wanted people to see in the liturgical year a way of following Jesus that was fruitful for them, Mm. such that they would then take up those practices and become better Christians. Yeah. I remember when I first went to a, a liturgical church and there was like nobody there to explain what was going on. Hmm. I was in a university and it was kind of like confusing. Yeah. And I kind of stumbled through these things for months and months and months before I finally clicked into place. And then I was kind of off to the races. But there are a lot of people who probably wouldn't have stuck through that part, that yeah. initial kind of season of confusion. And so this book is almost like, I imagine if I was sitting beside someone who was going through this experience saying, not giving too much. You don't want to like, you want to leave room for God, but you yeah. want to make it clear enough so they can then have the space to have their work with God. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine it as me sitting beside you during Lent, pointing out cool things that you might not know. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. That was the image that I had because I didn't want it to be too nerdy and I didn't want it to be too lightly devotional. I was trying to do not a devotional, not an academic treatise, but like a friend who's walking with you through the season. And then I hope that I imagine it being in a small group of people where it didn't just admire the things that I saw about the season. It would inspire their own kind of feedback. So I really hope to inspire a conversation and reflection on how the liturgical year makes you a better Christian. And so that's what I wanted to do. So I dreamed of it being in churches, in small groups. All right, Isa, sorry to put you on the spot, but we're going to ask everybody this in our Lenten season. Have you decided what what are you going to do for Lent this year? What are you going to add or give up or whatever? Have you decided yet? I think that I am trying to be, I'm making a spiritual practice to be physically present more um, in my family. It sounds like a, a strange thing to say, but even like in the geography of our house, uh, you know, like the kids can be in one room and you can kind of sneak and uh-huh. hide off. Mm. I'm thinking about how to be emotionally and physically present as a member Beautiful. of yeah. our family, as an important spiritual practice, and making sure that I reserve enough emotional energy to love my family well. Because church and life can exhaust me. Yeah. And I don't want my children or my wife to get the tatters of my emotion. Yeah. So this means setting better boundaries so I can have more to give to them. So that's something I really want to be intentional mm. about is doing less work during Lent. I'm heading so you're, you're going to be fasting from work and busyness to be more present to your family. That's beautiful, man. That's, that's a good That's one. so good, that's, yeah. That's, that's, yeah. A, that's a real goal. That's not super like – that's just that's what I want to do. That's much better than giving up chocolate or something, man. Yeah, I, mean, I, may, I may give up chocolate too, but if you're talking about like a spiritual practice, that's yeah. the thing that I've really been highlighting because there's always nice. more to do for God, but you can rest. Yeah. Mm, Amen. Way to go. Esau, thanks so much, man. Great to have you with your C4SO peeps today. It was good to meet you for the first time, Mickey. Good to see you. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to the C4SO podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to share this episode and subscribe and leave a review. It helps us to get the word out. Thanks.